Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this time of gathering and worship together as we honor you in our lives and and honor the relationships that you're building amongst us. And God, I just pray right now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place, um, that you would move mightily through this message and through the truth of of the message, God, that you are indeed risen. And, and God, we just ask right now that you would touch our hearts and touch my heart and, um, and use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb and told, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going on a village, going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do you not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more? It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with him assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. 
While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, the very words of God. We, I read such a long portion because I want us to fully invest in the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Because what I notice as we read this portion is that on the day of resurrection, the women are going to the tomb to take care of a body. They're not going to the tomb to see if he's still there. They're sure he's dead. They watched him die. They took his body off of the cross. Joseph of Arimathea laid it in a tomb. And they saw him roll the stone in front of that tomb. And they've now come back after the Sabbath to do what is proper and appropriate and a part of the Jewish burial custom of that day to take care of the body. But instead, when they show up, what happens? It's empty. The tomb is empty and he's not there. And this is a shock. It's not something that they expected. And they're sitting there trying to figure this out. And it's still not quite making sense. They're amazed at the report, but they still don't really understand it. This is not something expected. Just like today, if you saw somebody go through a tragic, terrible accident and die, and you watched their mangled remains be placed into their burial site, you would not, when you go back two or three days later to put flowers on the grave, expect to meet them there, would you? The same is true 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, the people are pretty smart also. Go to Israel someday. They had a lot of ingenuity. They had incredible libraries. They had Plato and Socrates long before Jesus. They had all these phenomenal building projects in Israel. People are bright. They know dead people stay dead. They're really clear on that, right? So when they go to this place to, to mourn the death of Jesus, to mourn their loss, instead they find an empty tomb, and this doesn't entirely make sense. Now, the women believe right away. We'd all like you to notice. But the gentlemen are a little slow on the uptake. And so as then Jesus walks along the road with these two, not of the same 12 or the 11 that are left, but these two other disciples who are along the road and they're walking there and they're going on the road to Emmaus and Jesus starts to chat with them and remember what they say, like, are you new? Don't you know what's just happened? And it says that they are downcast. Now, they say the story. They say, we've heard in amazement that the women have reported that the tomb is empty, but yet their faces are still downcast because they haven't seen him yet, and they don't know what that means. Did somebody steal the body? 
What, what's happened we don't understand. This has been a series of disappointments, hasn't it? This whole week. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we call it, which was really Lamb Selection Day for the Passover, and people threw like a big party. They were really excited to see him come. And they said, yes, now this guy is going to finally kick Rome out, and we're going to be in charge again. Things are going to be great. And instead, a short week later, he's dead. So this has been a series of disappointing events that are very confusing. So this one right here, they're on the road and they're still downcast. And he says, you know, well, what things have gone on? And they say about Jesus of Nazareth. And I just want you to note really quick that phrasing. It just means Jesus of Nazareth, that that's where he's from. In the ancient world, people didn't always have last names like today, okay? So Christ is not his last name. Messiah is not his last name. It's a descriptor of who he is. But here they describe him just as the one from Nazareth. And they say he was a prophet. He did all this great stuff. And this is the key. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And they're at this moment where they're fairly certain that has not happened. Rome's still in charge. Rome is still crucifying people. People are still dying. Things aren't yet set to right. And, and we thought he was going to be the one. Apparently we were wrong. They've backed the wrong horse at this point. They're fairly certain they got it all wrong. And now Jesus starts to explain to them from the Moses and the prophets and all of the scriptures what's happened. Wouldn't you have liked to be in that conversation? That would be very helpful, wouldn't it? Better than any concordance, you know, Beth Moore Bible study, anything else would be hanging out, fly on the wall, road to Emmaus. And as Jesus explains all of this to him, you can almost start to hear like the things falling into place, right? Like things starting to just fall down in and go, oh, wait, maybe, and then, but I'm not, it still doesn't make sense. People crucified by Rome don't come back. Like, that's, that's the thing with the crucifixions. They're very effective. And as they continue, he continues to explain all of this. I love this passage. It says, and it's when he breaks the bread that they recognize him. A beautiful picture for when we take communion here at Spark. It's in the breaking of bread that we recognize Jesus. And now they're like, oh my goodness. Now we know, we're starting to understand, and they go rushing back, and they're all there, and Jesus shows up, and he says, literally, peace be with you. But it's kind of fun, right? You just picture Jesus just showing up right there in the middle of the room. Peace. And what do they first think about him? A ghost. Sure, because we saw him die on the cross. And we took his body down and we wrapped it up and we put it in a tomb. So he's dead. So is this a ghost? What is this? And Jesus says, no. Flesh, bones, feel, touch. In fact, let me prove it to you. I'll eat something. And he eats a bit of broiled fish. And he takes it in their presence and then proceeds to continue to explain everything. I don't know about you, but I'm fairly sure that I would not have been easily convinced either. If I were of those 11 disciples, fortunately I'm a woman so I get to be at the tomb, but the rest of you gentlemen in the room, if, if you're in that group, I would be fairly certain 
that he was not alive. We've seen what Rome does. They're very good at what they do. And yet something happens here where Jesus appears to them fully, bodily, physically resurrected and begins to teach them from all of the scriptures what they can now understand, though they couldn't just a few minutes before. So let's try to understand what is happening in the historical and cultural context of Jesus's day to prepare these disciples, these followers, for getting to the point where they can receive the resurrected person of Jesus. You guys ready to understand a little bit? Yeah. Okay, great. So, resurrection. Resurrection is two different things in the Bible. The first thing that we would define resurrection is a one-time raising from the dead with the individual to still experience death again later. Okay? So you've been ra- you Jesus rises you from the dead, but you're still going to die someday. The second definition of resurrection is the full corporate resurrection of the dead to occur at the end of time. Does that make sense? So there's two types of resurrection. Really, when we talk about the first one, that one time rising from the dead, we often refer to it more as being raised from the dead rather than resurrection, because we use that word resurrection to mean that full corporate resurrection at the end of all time when things are set to right. Those two viewpoints were also the same in Jesus's day. So people understood that somebody could be raised from the dead. And here are your biblical examples of people being raised from the dead. So we've got Elijah raising the widow's son and Elisha raising the Shunammite son. And Elisha's bones cause resurrection to happen in one guy when they get thrown in the cave. And then Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. Jesus raises Lazarus. Herod thinks that John the Baptist is raised. So even Herod, a, a Roman poser guy pretending to kind of be Jewish, kind of not, that guy, he thinks that there's a possibility of being raised from the dead. And then the Apostle Paul also, and then Eutychus and every So... We have that example in scripture. The second example we also have in scripture, corporate resurrection. We've gotten 1 Samuel 2.6. 1 Samuel 2.6 says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. And then in Ezekiel 37, I don't know if you recall this portion of your scripture, but God has taken his people out of Jerusalem and they've been exiled into Babylon in captivity. But even as they go, God's spirit mercifully goes with them. And God gives Ezekiel this vision of all of these dead bones lying out in this field. And God, Ezekiel, hears a rattling sound and the bones start to come back together and the sinews start to be placed on flesh. And then a mighty people of Israel are risen back. And it's a metaphor that God is using saying, I will open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And God gives them through Ezekiel's vision, a a vision and hope for resurrection. Now for ancient Israel, that vision and hope for resurrection did not just mean I will someday not be in the grave and then I'll have pretty wings and a nice harp and I'll float in a cloud with Jesus or God or, you know, with, you know, my favorite 49er or whatever it is. Whatever concept of heaven is. That's not what they had in mind. For the ancient Israelite, it wasn't about a separation of body and soul or spirit. Everything is one. It's not separated at all. They believed that God himself would truly set things back to right, and that meant they would be 
brought back to life in a new resurrected body, and it meant that things would be set right and that they would be back in the land and they would be ruling and being over themselves as opposed to being under the oppressive rule of Rome or someone else. That's what they thought that meant. So when they see this vision from Ezekiel, they're like, yes, things will be set back to right. Here's another passage from Daniel 12. Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So in the book of Daniel, we have a picture of God having a judgment day and people being resurrected, but then going to one of two places, depending upon their behavior. It may be a bit similar to what you read in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats based upon their behavior. Yes? Great. So we have in our text examples of both types of resurrection. Now we have in this beautiful land of Israel, as we talked about before, a land between. A land that is completely surrounded by powers. So in the very short time just before Jesus, a lot has happened, and it's actually going to inform what the disciples' expectations are with regard to resurrection. And what happens in about the 300 years prior to the time of Jesus, let's say five, let's say a couple thousand, but really, we're going to focus in on the second temple period tonight. What God does during that period paves the way, makes a foundation, builds shelves, whatever analogy you want, so that when the resurrection happens, the people can receive it. Even though it's unexpected, even though there's going to be some explanation necessary. So for those of you, just a quick brief overview of our biblical story. You remember all the way back in the garden? There we are right there. And then Israel has proceeded through covenantal promises and relationships with God. There was a united monarchy with Saul and then David and Solomon. And now at this point, things are going to break apart, which is very sad and is actually going to lead us to the important part of our story. The northern kingdom is going to be taken off by Assyria in the north and exiled in 722 BC. Those 10 tribes gone sort of in some ways never to be heard from again. And the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, is going to be exiled in 586 BC to Babylon. This is the part we're going to start to pay attention to. When the Babylonians come and take Israel out of the land, and this is just prior to the time of Jesus, about, you know, 500 years. At that time, they destroy the temple They take everything out and they remove the people and take them to Babylon for 70 years. After the 70 years are over, there is a benevolent ruler in Babylon who allows some of the Israelites to return to rebuild. You remember this part in your biblical story, yes? Now, some of the Israelites stayed in Babylon because it was nice. And others went back, a vast majority went back and started to rebuild. At that point, then, we're going to start to define what we'll call the second temple period. Why is it called the second temple period? Because it's the second temple. All right? So the first temple Solomon built, that was destroyed, and now they're going to come back from Babylon and they're going to rebuild. Now at this point, you have all those great stories with people in the rebuilding process, taunting one another and things. And it goes on for a little bit of time, but not long afterwards, by the 300s, we have Alexander the Great coming in and Greece coming in and taking out everything that they had built. So now instead of self-rule, instead of taking care of themselves, the Jews aren't in charge anymore, and now they're under the oppression of the Greeks. 
How do you feel if you're in your own land, but you're not in charge? You still feel like you're in exile. You still feel like you're removed from God's promises, and you're still longing for God to set things right. But the Greeks come in, and then after the Greeks, there's a very brief rebellion, a Jewish rebellion with the Maccabean revolt, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And those Maccabees um, sort of say, we're not going to eat swine flesh, and we're not going to desecrate the Sabbath, and we're not going to stop circumcising our sons. And the Greeks started to forcibly torture and kill Jews all over the area as a result of their disobedience to Greeks' rule to say to leave all of their Jewish faith behind. And so a family, a Hasmonean family, rises up and says, we're not going to take it anymore, and they fight. So, Jew, so for the Jewish rule, it comes back into play for a little bit, and they're able to sort of rule in their own land for a short period of time until Rome comes. In 63 BC, and Pompey sacks Rome, sacks Jerusalem, comes on in, and now Rome's in charge. And now they po- appoint Herod the Great, who's really a figurehead, and um, he's got some power, but he's kind of a mess. And Jesus is born right in here. Herod dies just after Jesus is born. His sons take over. The kingdom's portioned out again. But Rome is in charge. So under Herod, the great thing was he remodeled the second temple and made it really awesome. And so it's kind of a third temple, but it's really not. It's still the second temple because it wasn't destroyed the first time, but sort of expanded, remodeled, made magnificent. So the Jews have their temple back, but they're not in charge. They have their priesthood back, but they're not in charge. Rome is in charge, Rome is ruling, and all that's happening to them, Rome can decide on any, you've read the Gospels, maybe a lot of you, hey, I want you to walk with me one mile, carry my stuff for me, a Roman soldier can say. They're in charge. They're the ones in charge. And then after the crucifixion of Jesus in 30 AD, in 70 AD, Rome ultimately destroys the temple in Jerusalem. That's our brief quick snapshot into the history and the framework, the staging of what's happening with Jesus. Now, I mentioned the Maccabean revolt, and I just want to demonstrate to you guys for a couple seconds. We'll just be a little bit Bible scholars for a minute. I think that a lot of times in Christianity, I grew up believing that resurrection was something that Christians made up. Not that we made it up a fictional account, but that it it happened first with us, and it was a Christian concept only. But what I'd like to demonstrate to you tonight is that it's actually a very Jewish concept. Resurrection is deeply rooted in the Jewish faith and the Judaism that we read about in our scriptures. And Jesus sits right into that, allowing for there to be an expectation and a way to hold this miraculous, inexplicable event of the resurrection of Jesus. So in 2 Maccabees 7, and this was a text that was being passed all around during Jesus' day. This was the story of how this family had stood up to Antiochus Epiphanes, these terrible Greek rulers, and said, no, I will not disobey God. And so in this passage in 2 Maccabees, Antiochus and his rulers, they're sitting there and they're torturing this woman's seven sons. And as they scalp and torture and cut off tongues and burn people in pans and do all that one son unto the next, these are the passages that we start to read. When he was at his last breath, the oldest son says, You accursed wretch, 
You dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. So Maccabees immediately has a portion right here that says, we believe that God will raise us up from the dead even if you kill us. Does it sound a little bit like Daniel? And those stories you're familiar with, yes, remember? They say, you know what, king? If you even are going to shatter, and with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, if you want to refer to them as Hebrew. Remember, they're staying at their fiery furnace, and they said, if you throw us in there and we die, we die. But we believe that God can rescue us. That story was also going around quite a bit in Jesus' day and before. These stories about what do you do with foreign rulers who require you to do terrible, awful things, to reject the laws of God, who are standing in your land, who are desecrating the temple, who are doing all these horrific things, slaughtering a pig on Zeus's altar in the Holy of Holies. I mean, what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Where is God in that? Where is God in exile? Where is God when these foreign oppressors rule? And is there any hope? And the answer in Jesus' day and before was, yes, there is hope. And if it doesn't come right now in this present world, it will come when we are resurrected from the dead. And son after son goes through, and, and the next son says, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of mortals and to cherish the hope of God gives of being raised again by him, but for you there will be no resurrection to life. Can you imagine that kind of fist in the face of the Greeks as they're killing? But you you won't rise from the dead. And then in the mother's last son, her youngest son is dying, and they're trying to convince him to please, please, you know, the, the Greeks are trying to convince him, just eat the pig flesh, just go ahead, just eat this swine, just go ahead, and then we'll let you live. And as he's starting to, he's not quite wavering, but his mother jumps in and says, I've lost everyone and my only hope is that if you accept death and you don't disobey God, in God's mercy, I'll get you back again along with your brothers. Her view, her belief in resurrection so strong that she's urging her son to accept death at the hands of the foreign oppressors in order to continue to obey God's law because she's sure, she is certain beyond a shadow of doubt that he will rise again and she will be able to hold him in her arms again. That is the narrative that's going on in Jesus' day. That when foreign rulers come, that when things are going bad, that even if you don't see a bit of hope here, there is hope still coming. And if it's not on this side of heaven, it's in the one to come. It's in the world to come. The Essenes who lived on the Dead Sea, along the Dead Sea in a monastic community, they also had a messianic expectation of resurrection. And in their Dead Sea scroll called the Messianic Apocalypse, they said, for he, the Messiah, will heal the wounded, resurrect the dead, proclaim glad tidings to the poor. They expected the Messiah to come and resurrect the dead. The Sadducees, perhaps you'll remember them. If you were in Sunday school growing up, we always learned that they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if you read in Matthew chapter 22, you can read their discussion with Jesus where they ask a very 
funny question of him about, well, if there's a resurrection of the dead and a guy was married right here, and then, you know, in the, in the, and then his wife dies, he marries another woman, and then when they're resurrected, who's, who's he going to hang out with? Like, which wife? And Jesus is great because he just responds and goes, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures, which is a great thing to say to a, a religious leader. Um, try saying that to a pastor. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures. You can say that to me if I'm wrong, by the way. Um, okay, and then in Acts chapter 23, Paul starts a riot by standing in the middle and saying, as he's being brought in to the courts, he just shouts out because the Sadducees are there and the Pharisees are there, and, he, and, and Paul's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees do believe in the resurrection of the dead, and he shouts out amongst the Sadducees and the Pharisees at the Sanhedrin, and he goes, I am being persecuted because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and the whole place goes into chaos and it starts to brawl. Because people are going to fight over this. So even though we have this beautiful picture in Maccabees of an expectation of a resurrection of the dead, of God setting things to right, there's some diversity and argument amongst the Jewish community in that day. Just like we have amongst Christians today. It's true. It happens. Yeah. Okay. The Sadducees, by the way, were really posh. They had these sweet, awesome palaces. And those of you who've been with us in Jerusalem, we go into the Herodian mansion, and it's fantastic. And they were wealthy. So no wonder they didn't believe in the world to come, because things were kind of awesome right now for them. And so they didn't have an expectation that things would get better. They were as good as they were going to get. And they also didn't believe in the full inspiration of all of the scriptures. They just held to the Torah. Now, the Pharisees and rabbinic Judaism, of which Jesus is most primarily a strain of, and all of his disciples and followers, they have some really fantastic things to teach us about how they were thinking about resurrection in this time. The Mishnah in Sanhedrin 90 says this. Rabbi Gamaliel, by the way, he's the rabbi that instructed the Apostle Paul, is asked, how do we know that the dead will be resurrected? And Rabbi Gamaliel says, we know it from the Torah. We know it from the prophets. We know it from the writings. In the book of Devarim, which is Deuteronomy, it is written, you shall die and rise. So these rabbis regularly argued for the resurrection of the dead. They also wrote in their ancient writings, they, these are those, they talked about who doesn't get to get into the world to come. And they said, these are they who have no share in the world to come, who say there's no resurrection of the dead, that the law is not from heaven, and the Epicureans. <laughs> it's hilarious. So, you know, just that, you know, name your three groups of people who aren't getting into heaven. And the rabbis say, anyone who denies the resurrection of the dead. And the Epicureans. But anyone who denies the resurrection of the dead is not getting in. By the way, in this passage just after, they, the rabbis also start to list kings from the Israelite period where they're sure they're not getting in. They're like, yeah, Ahab's not getting in. Manasseh, maybe. He said that one prayer, but he's not getting in. So they, list, they actually list the, some particular names that they're sure have no place in the world to come. But you can see in Jesus' day, there's an expectation for resurrection. There's an expectation that things will be set to right. And in fact, there was even a prayer that was said throughout the day called the Amidah, the standing prayer, which is still said today. And it's so beautiful. It's just one small portion. You sustain the living with loving kindness. You revive the dead with great mercy. You support the falling, heal the sick, set free the bound, and keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, O doer of mighty acts? Who resembles you, a king who puts to death and restores to life? and causes salvation to flourish, and you are certain to revive the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who revives the dead. 
And that prayer said in Jesus' day and still today, declaring that God is a God that will revive the dead. This is what we believe in Christianity today as well, don't we? We believe that though right now, God forbid, somebody we love and care about might be gone from this world tomorrow, we might lose them to death, we believe that if they have confessed a a faith in Jesus Christ, that they will be, that God is the righteous judge and he's going to work all this out and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and things will be set to right. It's the same thing 2,000 years ago. That same expectation of what will come. Isaiah talks about it. Daniel talks about it. Book of Revelation talks about it, echoing Daniel and Isaiah. Jesus talks about it. That there will be a day when God has the ultimate resurrection of the dead and sets everything to life. And, and right now, we just wait for that day to come. And we're all waiting. And Kevin talked about how we're stuck between those trees, right? From creation to revelation. And we're waiting for the restoration of God's kingdom. So what is it that happens all of a sudden on this resurrection morning? And does it change anything in our world today? And did it change anything for them? I think it changed everything. So let's just look for a couple moments at that. Remember again, at the beginning of that week, there was celebration. And there was an expectation that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. You heard them say it on the road to Emmaus. They said, we thought he was the one. We thought he was going to be the one. That Jesus of Nazareth, he wasn't the way back, the wrong horse. He wasn't the right one. Rome crucified him along with everyone. We thought he was going to be the one. But when we started that week, we really thought he was the one. And we celebrated that. But when we got to the tomb and we found that it was empty, we're confused. We don't understand. Rome is still in charge. Rome still, the ancients talk about the brutal rule of Rome. That at one point to to squelch a slave rebellion among some of the people that they'd overcame, they they crucified 6,000 people. Josephus records that they ran out out of wood for the crucifixions in Jerusalem and started nailing people to the walls of Jerusalem. When Rome crucifies you, you die. And it's the most brutal, horrific, awful type of death you can imagine. And when they put Jesus on that cross and put that sign above his head that said, King of the Jews, that was not because they thought he really might be the King of the Jews. It was because they were saying, this is what we will do to your king if you rebel against us. If you pick somebody to lead, if you pick somebody to lead a rebellion, we're going to take you out. And so as everyone had these expectations that Jesus would go in and indeed take control, truly redeem Israel, lead a rebellion back in, cleanse the temple, kick the Romans out, just like the Maccabees had done to the Greeks not that long before. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. And instead goes peacefully as he's arrested in the garden, waits for them truly. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that where Jesus is waiting and praying that night of his arrest, he could have gone in two seconds. There is a very quick road to the desert and you disappear. He had every opportunity to escape the crucifixion had he wanted to. 
but he submits unto death on the cross. And then, three days later, much to our surprise, there's an empty tomb. And Jesus has done what we thought was impossible. He's not just talking about a resurrection of the dead to come, but in Christ right now we get to see that in Jesus that which will happen happens now. That the opportunity to watch a dead thing come back to life, never to die again, that experience happens now in Christ. That he is the first fruits of our resurrection, Paul says. That Jesus is the first one to demonstrate what it is to be physically, bodily raised from the dead. Physical raised, bodily resurrection. Not a, I'm going to go and my body goes down into the earth and then my spirit floats away someplace else. That's a, not a, a Jewish early Christian thought. It's that we wait And we wait for the day when resurrection will come, when things will be set to right. And in Christ, we get to see right now that that is happening presently. And I have some clues, I think, that indicate they started to get this. If you go to the beginning in Acts, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, this is what happens immediately following Jesus' resurrection. They're sitting there and they're trying to figure out what it is they're going to do. And in Acts chapter 2, they're at the house, at the temple, which is the word for for the temple, the house, the house of God. They're at the house of God, and the Holy Spirit's fallen down. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, the one who is presently reigning and ruling. How can that be true, Peter? We saw him dead and crucified. And Peter stands there and says, he's alive. He's been raised from the dead. And no longer do we only call him Jesus of Nazareth, where he's from. But we've given him now the title that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is here and he has inaugurated and started this resurrection life. Not just in the world to come, but in the right now. In the very right now. This is the good news of the resurrection, that in the face of all hope being gone, in the face of being tortured, in the face of being um, oppressed by foreign rule, in the face of full death, that God can bring life. And Jesus starts that process of giving each one of us new life right now. No, No Jew here would have started to baptize people in the name of a dead rabbi. They don't say, you know, Jesus, the crucified one, the dead guy. Let me baptize you in his name. They say, Jesus, the Messiah. The one who's alive. And the one who's ruling and reigning. And is it all as it's supposed to be? No, not yet. But things are starting to come into place. And maybe you've seen it in your own life. Have you started to trust Jesus? That you start to see a few things where dead things start coming back to life. I've watched marriages get restored. I've, I've watched families have hope again. That reversal of death that Kevin was talking about last week. Resurrection reverses the things that are hurting and broken our world. 
because of the resurrection of Jesus. He starts to set things to right, and he gives us a mission and a power to go forth and to start to inaugurate that new kingdom together. Kind of fun? Yeah? So, so that's maybe why they got it, eventually. There was an expectation that there would be a resurrection. They just didn't know it was going to happen in Jesus right now, and that that resurrection would indicate what was also going to happen someday. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for the truth that you bring new life. And God, when we go to the tomb expecting to mourn the thing we've lost, Jesus, you give us the opportunity to meet life again. And so, God, for wherever we're all at in that journey, would you rule and reign in our lives? Would you be alive in our life, God? Would you teach us what it is to trust in you, that you've risen from the dead, and that you are alive and you are seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and that you are starting the process of bringing your kingdom into this world right now? Jesus, show us that. Show us how even in the midst of darkness and despair, we have hope. God, thank you for unexpected hope. Thank you for resurrection. And thank you for teaching us about what it means to follow you with everything we have. In your name, amen.